Thank you for listening to the podcast of Palmetto Baptist Church. We pray that as you listen to the following message, that it will encourage you to continue to connect, grow, and serve in your relationship with God and with others. Mark chapter 13, we'll read verses 1 through 13. As Jesus was leaving the temple... One of his disciples said to him, Look, teacher, what massive stones, what magnificent building. Do you see all these great buildings? Jesus replied, Not one stone here will be left on another. Every one will be thrown down. As Jesus was sitting on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, Peter, James, John, and Andrew asked him privately, Tell us, when will these things happen? And what will be the sign that they are all about to be fulfilled. Jesus said to them, Watch out that no one deceives you. Many will come in my name, claiming I am He, and will deceive many. When you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be alarmed. Such things must happen, but the end is still to come. Nation will rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places and famines. These are the beginning of birth pains. You must be on your guard. You will be handed over to the local councils and flogged in the synagogues. On account of me, you will stand before governors and kings as witnesses to them. And the gospel must first be preached to all nations. Whenever you are arrested and brought to trial, do not worry beforehand about what to say. Just say whatever is given you at the time, for it is not you speaking, but the Holy Spirit. Brother will betray brother to death, and a father his child. Children will rebel against their parents and have them put to death. Everyone will hate you because of me, but the one who stands firm to the end will be saved. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank You for Your Word. And Lord, nothing that I'm about to say comes close to being equal to what I just read, because what I just read is Your Word. But Lord, I pray that You would speak through us and speak to us so that we will hear a word from You that will both challenge us and correct us, but also encourage us in the times in which we live. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. The title of this message is The Signs of the Times. We human beings are sign seekers. We are sign seekers because somehow signs give us certainty. And oh, how we love certainty. We love to be sure of something. One of the hardest times that we will experience in our lives is when we're in the middle of a situation or a crisis and a decision is confronting us and we're just not certain which way we ought to go exactly how we ought to go. There's nothing more frustrating than uncertainty. And one of the reasons we are such sign seekers and have been throughout all of human history is that signs somehow 
give us assurance because signs, at least we think, give us certainty. In particular, we are sign seekers who like two different types of signs. The first type of sign that we like is that sign uh, where we, we think God is saying something to us, we think God is leading us in a certain direction, but we seek a sign that verifies that God is truly doing what we think that He's saying to us that He either wants to do or He is doing. Uh, the most prominent example of this type of sign in Scripture is found in the book of uh, Judges, chapter 6 through 8. There was a man by the name of Gideon. He was a, uh, a regional military and family leader during the period of the Judges, a very dark period during the time of Israel between the death of Joshua and the beginning of the uh, kingship, the monarchy under Samuel. But Gideon was one of those regional judges, regional military uh, tribe leaders. And God told him, he says, I'm going to, to use you to bring victory to my people over the Midianites and the Amalekites. And Gideon said, that's great. But let me make sure that you're actually going to do what I think you just said to me that you're going to do. And so Gideon went through a series of signs. He came up with them. He said, first of all, Lord, I'll take this blanket, this fleece, and I will throw it out on the ground in the evening. And the next morning, if it is all wet and the ground is dry, then I'll know that truly you are telling me what I think that you're telling me. And so Gideon threw the blanket out on the ground, and the next morning the blanket was soaking wet, the ground was dry, and he, as he was picking up the blanket, he thought, man, uh, God is... Uh, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. Uh, it's just natural that in the morning dew that the blanket would be soaking wet and the ground around it dry. Maybe I need to rephrase that. And so he comes back to God and he says, God, let me, let me try this one more time. Please don't be angry with me for seeking a second sign Tonight, I'll throw the blanket back out, and in the morning, if the ground is soaking wet and the blanket, the fleece is dry, then I'll know that you truly have said to me what I, I think that you're saying to me. How many of us would love to have a sign verifying what we think God is saying to us? In fact, I'd like to have a sign verifying what people come to me and say that God has told them to tell me to do. That's what I really like. Somebody comes up and says, God spoke to me last night and told me to tell you. That just scares the life out of me. But there have been a lot of times when I thought God was saying something to me. But I wasn't quite sure, not so much because I doubt God, but because I doubt myself. I doubt my receptivity to what God might or might not be saying to me. I know that I have gotten what I thought was God's voice confused before. There are times when He spoke to me and I wasn't sure it was Him and I didn't listen to Him. There were times when He wasn't speaking to me, but I, I thought I heard some sort of uh, inner a compulsion from somewhere, maybe a voice in my heart. I thought it was him and it wasn't, and I did something that just turned out to be an utter failure. There are a lot of times when I'd love to have a sign showing me exactly that God has truly said what I think he said to me. And so we like those kind of signs, those verification signs. 
And then the second, second type of sign-seeking that is popular with people consists of signs that tell us how God will end everything up. For this type of sign-seeking, people love obsessing over, for instance, the book of Revelation or the books of Daniel or Ezekiel or the apocalyptic passages like this one in Mark or in Matthew, which are full of symbols and all kinds of weird-looking pictures. And we are left to try to figure out what each picture represents or symbolizes. And usually what happens is people look at books like the Revelation and they take their own preconceived notions about what the end is going to be like and they kind of cookie cutter force them onto the Scripture so that what comes out in the end is exactly what, well, they wanted to come out in the end anyway. The disciples in Mark 13 were of this sort. This is the type of sign-seeking they were looking for. They were interested in how God was going to bring everything to a conclusion. Occasionally we will do Bible studies outside of Sunday morning and Sunday night. The most well-attended Bible study that I've ever conducted in this church was during the winter of 2001. I had not been here six months, and we did a Bible book study on Sunday afternoons on the Revelation. The Sunday school room up there was packed full. We had to add chairs. And it wasn't because the teacher was good. It was because it was the Revelation. And everybody has heard that the Revelation gives a timeline to the end time, and therefore we want to know with certainty what the signs pointing to the end time are all about. I wonder if the attendance would have been the same if instead of the revelation I announced a 12-week study on the book of Nahum. I'm doubting it. There just isn't that kind of excitement about Nahum. We don't even know who Nahum is. Whom are you talking about, Nahum? So we like signs, signs that verify, signs that open up chapters to the end of time. And this morning, I'd like to highlight five signs, but these are danger signs that I think characterize our times, and they also characterize the times of Jesus and his disciples, First of all, I want you to note that in our time, there's the danger sign of camping out on what does not matter. The sign of camping out on what does not matter. Verse 1 said, as Jesus was leaving the temple, one of the disciples said to him, Look, teacher, what massive stones, what a magnificent building. And truly it was. You can't go over to the Holy Land and see Herod's temple nowadays because in the year 70, the Roman army came in and leveled the temple. What you can see, though, if you go over to the Holy Land, are the foundation stones of that magnificent building. And they are magnificent. I've said before, I was over there back in, uh, I think, 89 or 90, and... I walked up and just touched the foundation stones of that old temple, and one of those stones was five feet by six feet by 36 feet. 
solid stone. And how they got those stones up above any level at all without the modern machinery that we enjoy having today in construction, it beats me. It was truly a magnificent building and the disciples were impressed with this building. Who wouldn't be impressed with a massive building? Even though Atlanta is not New York City, uh, I go through Atlanta going to hospitals quite frequently and I, I love the city of Atlanta. I love her buildings. In fact, I've been searching the internet for one of those high-rise buildings that will allow somebody to tour the very top of it. And because I'm wanting to do it, I'm wanting to use it as an excuse for a senior adult trip. None of those buildings will let you up there, by the way. I guess you have to be somebody. By the way, if we do have any somebodies here who can get us access to one of those tall buildings, especially the one that goes up at a point and has got all the lights up at the top, I want you to talk to me about it. Yeah. Right now, all we can do is just tour Phipps Plaza. Yeah, you're real excited about that. The disciples were impressed with this building. And you know, as massive and wonderful as that building was, it didn't matter a whole lot. It wasn't something that made a difference at the end of the day of history. It's gone. In fact, the first, Sol the first temple built by Solomon was destroyed by the Babylonians in 586. And about 70 years or 80 years later, they started the long, laborious work under a guy named Zerubbabel to rebuild that temple, although it was a shadow of the temple they had. And that temple was worked on back and forth until Herod came along, Herod the Great, who died in 4 BC, he, he started the process of rebuilding that massive temple and it was beautiful because Herod was a lunatic about construction and architecture. I think it's kind of odd though that the disciples there following Jesus are impressed with this building that was built by Herod who was a demonic lunatic. So demonic was he that he tortured people. When Jesus was born, you remember according to Matthew chapter 2, he had all the, the baby boys of Bethlehem age two and under because he thought that would cover where the Messiah, the Messiah's age was. He had all the boys two and under in the vicinity of Bethlehem executed in hopes that in doing so he would kill the Messiah. He was a lunatic. When he died, fearing that the people who hated him would not cry but they would celebrate, he ordered the assassination of many of his ruling authorities, his leaders, so that by murdering them, there would be somebody crying at the time that Herod died. Fortunately for those leaders, that order was not carried out. But the disciples are impressed with this, this something that is really something that does not matter. And Jesus just shot it down. He says in verse 2, do you see these great buildings? Not one stone here will be left on another. Every one will be thrown down. It's such a temptation for us, ladies and gentlemen, to obsess over matters that don't amount to a hill of beans. In fact, 
If you are really bent out of shape over something right this moment, I don't know what it is or with whom it may be, but if you're really bent out of shape over something or about someone right at this very moment, the chances are very high that in 10 years, it will not have mattered even that long. What is it that consumes you? Does it really matter? There is the sign of the danger of camping out on what doesn't matter. Second, there's the danger sign of obsessing over timetables and blueprints. The most popular way of looking at this passage in Mark chapter 3 and passages like it, and especially Matthew, but also some in Luke, is to use these passages to prognosticate about the timeline for the end times. It's amazing how many people become expert forecasters of the end time when it comes to a passage like this. There are more books in Christian bookstores about end-time philosophy, most of it relatively new, historically speaking, than at any other type of books in the Christian bookstore. In fact, the biggest-selling Christian novels of all time have been all about this timeline for the end times, Tim LaHaye's The Left Behind series, Hal Lindsey's The Late Great Planet Earth, and of course, Pastor John Hagee and his, his constant artistic renderings all across his backdrop of a timeline for the end times, none of it really squaring with Scripture, at least the true interpretation of Scripture. The disciples wanted to know what was the end time going to be like. Verse number 3, as Jesus was sitting on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, Peter, James, John, and Andrew, the four ringleaders... They ask him privately, tell us, when will these things happen? What will be the sign that they are all about to be fulfilled? And in this particular passage, Jesus doesn't answer their question. Not really. He's rather, in, rather evasive. He gives a vague answer. You and I may look at the answer he gave and think, well, he's really pretty specific. He talks about wars and he talks about rumors of wars and he talks about uh, nations rising up against nation, kingdom against kingdom. He talks about earthquakes and famines and he talks about uh, uh, false messiahs and false prophets coming up. That sounds pretty specific. Well, it does sound pretty specific. Here's the problem with it. In every single era since Jesus said this, every one of these descriptions have been true. In the first century, there were false messiahs, and there were wars and rumors of wars, and there were earthquakes, and there were famines. And there were families that didn't get along. In the second century, that's the same case. In the third century, in fact, to, from the time of Jesus to this very day, there hasn't been one day in the history of human, uh, human history, in the timeline of human history, when there hasn't been a war going on. In fact, as we stand right here, there are somewhere between 35 and 40 wars going on right this moment around the world. And you and I thought, that the war between Israel and Gaza was the only one that was really going on. Maybe Afghanistan and what's left of Iraq. There are almost 40 wars in this planet going on as we speak. And there has never been a day since the time of Jesus when there wasn't at least one war going on on every single day. And so the things that Jesus described here that appear so specific are really rather vague. 
He chooses not to answer their question. Why would he do such a thing? I think it's because Jesus is not nearly as obsessed about what's going to happen in the end time as we human beings have been and are. I doubt seriously that Jesus would read the Left Behind series. I read them all, but I doubt that he would read them. I don't know. He might. I doubt that he would be too keen on on Hal Lindsey's books, and I doubt that he'd ever visit John Hagee, but I don't know that he'd visit me either. So I don't know what Jesus would do, but I'll guarantee you, Jesus is not as obsessed about the end times as we human beings are and have been. Alice McKenzie, a writer, a Christian writer, said this, to seek in this text a detailed schedule of the events of the end time is to misunderstand the entire purpose of the passage which is to encourage persistence in the present, not to peer into the future. There is the danger sign of obsessing over timetables and blueprints. Number three, there's the danger sign of holding to false hope. The danger sign of holding to false hope. Jesus said this in verse 5. He says, watch out that no one deceives you. Many will come in my name, claiming I am he, and will deceive many. But when you hear of wars and rumors of wars, don't be alarmed. These are the things that must happen, but the end is still to come. So one of the things that Jesus is specific on is this fact that there will always be those people, those charlatans, some of them very vocally and clearly claim to be messiahs. Others, they don't actually claim it, but they, they kind of get the following of a messiah and people latch on to them as if they are the next great guru of all time. And Jesus said, don't follow them. Listen, folks, be careful who you follow. Don't just take everything that somebody says to you at its face value. Don't just believe everything that even a preacher would tell you without going home and researching it. One of the greatest compliments that was ever given a church was given by by Paul of the church at Berea. Paul didn't even write a letter to these people. He didn't spend a whole lot of time with them, but he went into Berea, he started a church, and he was preaching. And the people would then take their old manuscripts of the Old Testament and they'd go home and they would double-check Paul to make sure that what he said was right. Man! Don't just take what somebody says. Don't just take what somebody emails you. Don't just take what somebody you respect says without researching it and doing your homework on it. There's the danger of holding on to false hope. Jesus said this. He said that there will be those who come claiming to be Messiah, but who in reality only offer false and disappointing hope, which is no hope at all. Many will come in my name claiming I am he, and they will deceive so many. There is the danger sign of holding to false hope. Fourth, there's the danger sign of ready-made answers. Ready-made answers. I never cease to be amazed at the number of prophets or so-called prophets there are in our world. 
well-intentioned people who know exactly where they are headed and what all is about to happen and where you're headed and what's about to happen to you. And, and they can write a term paper outlining in, in minute details exactly what God is going to do and what He's going to do to you and what you need to do and the reason for this catastrophe and that catastrophe. People who, who come, in, come in with a briefcase of ready-made answers and, and honestly and disappointingly, many of these ready-made answer experts are Christians or at least so-called or professed Christians. Whether it's a storm in New England, there will be those who claim, well, that storm is uh, God's judgment on this particular group. And it's always a group that they themselves disagree with because God never puts judgment on they themselves. Isn't that interesting? Or if it's a hurricane in New Orleans... You always have these prophetic prognosticators. Well, let me tell you why God is judging the city of New Orleans. Now, I'm not, I'm not saying that New Orleans doesn't deserve, deserve the judgment, but I'm going to tell you something else. Palmetto, Georgia does too. Or if it's a tsunami in Indonesia, well, God's judging those Muslims again. Really? Maybe he is, but do you know that? Do you know that? Has God said that to you? Are you that close to him? Really? You need to write a book. Call it scripture. Or if it's an earthquake in Haiti. Pat Robertson had the answer to that. God was judging them for something that uh, the French did back in the 1800s. Really? Is that the kind of God we really serve? Are you kidding me? I love all these people with these ready-made answers. Let me tell you what I find out about real life. At least this is where I live. I don't find the answers so ready-made. I don't find them always so black and white. I find them to be gray a lot of times. I find that where I look for answers, there will be no answers. I find that when I look for a specific answer from the Lord, sometimes He gives me vague, evasive answers. And it's frustrating. This God I love. Love these ready-made answers. The faithful response to disaster is not pointing a finger and say, God judged, and you fill in the blank. The faithful response, according to Jesus and what he actually said, is service to God and neighbor. I don't care if it's New York or New Orleans or Las Vegas or Palmetto or Haiti or Indonesia or wherever it might be. And along with that is the danger sign of overly clear explanations. Note that in this passage, Jesus does not suggest the interpretation of the troubles ahead will be easy. In fact, he warns of exactly this danger of an overly clear explanation to the events that will come. He said, many will come in my name, Jesus cautions, but they are not he. Some are prone to confusion. We are prone to confusion. But Jesus explicitly advises against alarm and overreaction, overly clear explanations. If you want to know how God responds to 
you and to events in your life. Go to the Gospels and read Jesus' response to people's questions. Because somebody will ask him something, like the disciples did here, and he's very evasive. Or he'll tell a story. I don't know how you are, and I love stories, but not when I'm asking somebody a question. When I ask somebody a question, I want the answer. No ifs, no ands, no buts. I don't want an answer that makes me uh, look at, it's like looking at a Where's Waldo page and I just can't really find the answer in the middle of all the clutter. I don't like that. I like for all the clutter to be gone. I'll be able to open up that page and say, bang, there's Waldo, just like that. That's the kind of answer I like. But guess what? Most of the time, and I mean the vast majority of the time, the answers Jesus gave were more like a full page of cluttered Waldo. You say, why would he do that? I'm not really sure, but one thing I have uh, learned in my own life is that Jesus will, will answer my questions with a cluttered Waldo page because there's something that I learn in the process of searching for Waldo. There's something I learn in searching for Jesus' answer in the middle of what appears to be a non-answer or what appears to be a story with no moral or no point, and yet the point is there. But I need to look for it. I need to search for it. Now, while this text warns us against some misguided responses, we are offered two assurances by Jesus. One is that the Holy Spirit supports us in every dreaded encounter and event. He says in verse 11, when you are arrested, brought to trial, don't worry beforehand what you'll say, but say whatever is given you at the time, for it is not you speaking, but the Holy Spirit. Where I grew up, preachers thought that this verse applied to preaching. You didn't study and pray, you just got up and the Holy Spirit spoke through you. The only problem was some of the things that were said, I'm not sure the Holy Spirit led them. He wasn't talking about preaching. He's talking about when you're in a crisis and you're searching for the right thing to say or you're searching for the right thing to do. He promises that his Holy Spirit will be with you and support you in that dreaded encounter. And the second thing is the one who keeps the faith and endures to the end will participate in Jesus' victory over death. Jesus wants us to hang on tight. Bill Hybels in his book, Too Busy Not to Pray, said this, he says, sometimes when you're in an airport, observe the difference between passengers who hold confirmed tickets on one hand and those who are on standby on the other. Those who hold confirmed tickets versus those who are on standby. He says the ones with confirmed tickets read the newspaper, they chat with their friends, they sleep, they'll run to the bathroom and stay for hours. But the ones on standby, they're hanging out at the ticket counter, they're pacing, they're smoking, they're eating chocolate, and they're smoking. Is there a seat vacant? Don't know yet. Won't know for a while. Come back. Is there a seat vacant? You just came here two minutes ago. You see, the difference, Bill Hybel says, is caused by the confidence factor. I'd call it the assurance factor. Don't... don't Fall prey to the danger signs that lead you down a road that is a dead end. But fall dependent upon the assurance 
of God's presence through his spirit and God's guidance through your crisis. And God will see you through. This is not a passage that has secrets to the end time. That's not what this is about. This is not a passage that just uh, criticizes any, anybody being impressed with a large building. But what it is, it is a passage that teaches us, hold on, tough times will come, but hold on, God will see you through. It's been that way in my life. It's been that way in a lot of your lives. And it'll be that way again. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are in control. We thank you that through every crisis we face, you have a handle on things, and we are so appreciative to you. God, help us not to fall prey to false prophets and signs that offer hope but, promise, but, but actually provide no hope. Lord, help us to rely on you, our sure rock. Lord, our firm foundation. Lord, as we go into this invitation, there are those here who need to come and receive you as their Savior. There are those who need to come join the church. There are those who need to be baptized. There are those who have prayer concerns that they need to bring to the altar. There are those who have other decisions, major decisions in their lives, and they need to pray over them. And Lord, I pray that at this moment, life change will begin in somebody's life. Lord, start that now. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.